Hello and welcome to episode number 10 of the Lifestyle Engineering Podcast. It's your host Renat Gabitov here and I cannot believe that we've already done 10 entire episodes. We've had episodes with incredible people ranging from philanthropists to entrepreneurs to adventurers and today's podcast episode is a true lifestyle engineer in his core. He probably has lived 10 lifetimes in his one. Rick LaRoche is a Navy frogman, he is a US diplomat, he's an author, he's a pilot, he is a college professor, and he is strong going and exploring what else is possible in life. Today's conversation ranges all over the place from different topics, from his upbringing to his travels and him being on the Survivor show in Sweden. I'm really excited for you to eavesdrop on this incredible conversation, so let's have a listen. Hi, uh, my name is Rick LaRoche. Uh, I'm 73 years old. I uh, was born and raised in the U.S., but I've lived all over the world, but uh, predominantly I would say in Sweden since I, I left the U.S. Uh, I have a military background. I have a university lecturing background. I have a business background. I have a sports background, and I'm a retired U.S. diplomat. I'm passionate about mindset, mental toughness, grit, resilience, optimism, successful aging, um, anything along those lines. Uh, peak performance, human performance, um, just all the new incredible research and the, the findings that are coming along that are just um, challenging all the things that I was taught when I was in school. I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. It took us a little bit of time to get set up and a couple couple weeks to also uh, get this episode scheduled. But I'm, I'm really, really excited to have this conversation because you and I, we initially connected through a program on peak performance called Zero to Dangerous, right? And you, I, I saw you share and you, you were, um, we were evaluating, I think, um, on on a, on a scale from zero to 10, how aligned we are and how, how well we perform and everything. And that, that led me to really looking into your background and I realized, whoa, uh, you, you're a Navy SEAL. A yeah, survival show as well. So I'm really, really excited for this. No, that, that's a fantastic program, that Zero to Dangerous. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And um, I, I didn't know too much about uh, Jamie Wheel and Stephen Coppler until I read that book, uh, Stealing Fire, which literally set me on fire. And then I started reading all their older books, too, and following everything they do. So when I got a chance to do that course, I was absolutely thrilled. Sorry, it's, I'm very it's, honored it, and humbled uh, because I've looked at some of your podcasts and I see the the caliber of people that you have on and I truly do not think that I fit into that. I mean, these are people with thousands of followers. Um, I don't know that I have any followers anywhere, despite the fact that I, I do have a blog, but I write mostly for my own interest in the hopes that if one person gets something out of it, I'm happy. Exactly. And that, that's that's my philosophy as well. You know, I, I do I do these interviews because I'm I, I'm just a curious person, excited to learn the perspectives of different people, their lives, how they think, what their belief systems look like. And more recently, I've been I've been reflecting on the fact that if a post has more views, 
versus the other one that has very little views, it doesn't mean that the post with a lot of traction is more true than the one without. So right now we're living in the era when it's really difficult to distinguish what's actually true and what's not. There's so much information. Uh, recording stuff is so easy. Publishing stuff is so easy. Anybody can start a podcast. Anybody can start a YouTube channel. So it's it's a really interesting time. And uh, you mentioned you mentioned a little bit about your. Uh, technology, uh, technology illiteracy. Technosaurus, technosaurus. technosaurus yes, technologically challenged. I would imagine. I would imagine it's actually revelating things in in so many ways because you don't get distracted as many of us do. Uh, younger people, you know, and the folks that are born with phones. It's it's so difficult for us just to keep concentration. I know I see all these, but I see all these funny things too, uh, statements that, that younger people make. And of course, I mean, if I were their age, I would make it too. And uh, you've probably seen them on the net where they talk about, you know, why do they have a hashtag button on the telephone? You know, Twitter wasn't invented until, you know, not realizing that it meant number uh, or pound <laughs> sign or, you know, that it had other meanings before that. But um, it's like I grew up with watching a, a black and white Western called the Lone Ranger. It was a just, you know, I was every Saturday morning and the theme song to it, I, I won't try and sing it, but it went which I always knew until I got into high school as the theme song of the Lone Ranger. Only later did I realize it was the William Tell Overture. <laughs> it was classical music. so. Yeah, I'm it guilty of it too. <laughs> and uh, where did you grow up? How did your bringing look like? In I grew Florida. up in Florida, born and raised in Florida, a, a rarity because a lot of Americans seem to migrate to Florida. And how was how was life growing up in Florida back in the day? How did it look? Well, like? yeah, I was born in the mid '40s, and um, you know, it was. Coming out of World War II, uh, my parents were young. I'm, I'm a I'm a boomer, which I embrace. I love the term boomer. That's um, my gaming name is Crazy Boomer, and I do a lot of hashtags with Crazy Boomer. Um, what, what type of gaming? Uh, Counter Strike. Um, oh no way! Yeah, you, you play Counter Strike. I grew up with Counter Strike. Oh wow! Well, my my uh, younger son does too. I, I have to distinguish because I have a, a son who's uh, 40 as well. So, <laughs> my 14 year old is um, no. I I am just recently joined, and we were just starting to train, and boom, the the virus hit uh, because it's called the uh, Silver Snipers. It's the Swedish ga uh, senior gaming team. You have to be over 65 to be on it. So, whoa. Yeah, and, and they're really good, believe me. Um, I'm not nearly as good as they are. I have a lot of work to do to catch up. Um, so now I just kind of practice with bots and uh, maybe with my son once in a while when I can lure him away from his things. But he kills me too quickly, so he gets bored. Uh, that, that's insane. And I, I, feel like, uh, I, I feel like gaming in general puts us in such a deep flow state. I remember when I was growing up, uh, I was like 13, 14 years old when I when I got into into Counter Strike. 
I would just spend my entire Saturdays playing the game. I would just lose the sense of time. I would go to a computer club. Uh, you know, back in the day, we would have like four or five people of, of, of friends. We could go to a computer club, and in the computer club, we would all play against each other. So oh, you can easily use it. I mean, that's that's um, lose. It. That's one of the, I would say, probably uh, the flow state that I recognize the quickest uh through me and also uh, through my my son. I mean, you know, he'll say I'm just going in for a minute, and you know, six hours later or something to get something to drink or something to eat, and then right back in again. Um, I read an interesting article not too long ago that the U.S. Army was kind of looking over the horizon for their their needs of the future, and they were beginning to think that maybe we should be recruiting Gen Z kids as they become of age to the military because they have this incredible ability to assimilate lots of things coming all at the same time and make quick decisions. And that's what they believe, you know, we'll need in cyber or modern warfare. Um, be interesting to see. I'd, I'd never thought of gamers as, you know, going into the, to the military, but why not? That's right. I think they already recruit gamers to, uh, to drone operators that pretty, well, that pretty good. Have. Yeah. Uh, they, they have a lot of screens. They have similar controls to you, what you would have in a modern computer game. And people already have a lot of their uh, skills and reaction and uh, f philosophies, I think. I mean, it was a completely different world. Um, and, um, you know, kids weren't coddled. Um, there was no such thing as helicopter parenting. Um, you know, I spent long days on the beach, body surfing and huge waves all by myself, no adult supervision, come back for lunch, go back down to the beach again. Um, just kind of you were, you learned to flex your wings, you hurt yourself, you learned what hurt and how to avoid it, and you failed, more importantly, I think, tons of times. And you learned how to deal with failure, not necessarily to like failure, but how to, how to deal with it, um, learn something from it, pick yourself up, and keep on going. Worries me a little bit. I don't want to digress again. Worries me a little bit sometimes about really young people today when I, I hear them um, and again, maybe I, I maybe I shouldn't go there. I don't know, um, but it does seem that we we've lost uh, somewhere along the line a bit of that. Um, you know, let's let's let kids kind of learn about life through the school of hard knocks, as long as it's not dangerous to them. Certainly, no parent wants their their child to have any sort of severe injuries. But I'd already broken my arm twice by the time I was six or seven. Well, falling out of a tree. Yeah, it just fell out of a tree. Uh, my parents had told me, you, you really shouldn't be climbing trees when, when it's raining because they're slippery. Ah, good idea. Climb a tree while it's raining to see if my parents were right. And they were. <laughs> in, in Never Russia, again did thing. I climb a tree in the rain. <laughs> mm. In Russia, same thing. Uh, people, people just let the kids go outside, especially during the Soviet time, you know, there was this camaraderie and uh, the expectation that the community will take care of each other. So they would just let kids walk around, do whatever they want. Um, and uh, I do remember me growing up, I grow, grew up in the post-Soviet time, but when I would go to, to a village 
to see my grandparents. I spend I spend maybe two three months uh, during the summertime uh, in in those villages. They just let us out and we could do whatever we wanted. If we wanted to go swim in the lake, we could do that. Uh, fish. You, there was no limit to what you could do. That's fantastic. No, I mean, we were hunting and fishing and, you know, my, my, my father taught me how to use firearms properly, and, you know, what you were allowed to shoot and what you weren't allowed to shoot. And although I, I may have um, uh, broken that rule once or twice, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, the same with fishing. You knew how big a fish it had to be for you to keep it. Um, of course, it's a different world today that we live in. But I'm trying to. How learn. young were you when when uh, you when you were trained to do to to use firearms? Oh my gosh! Probably started from about eight or nine, somewhere around there. Um, but it started just you know learning the safety aspects of it, not the mm. shooting, just the safety aspects of it, and then eventually target shooting, shooting beer cans and beer bottles, um, stuff like that. Um, and then moving on to um, animals. And of course, in those days, pretty much anything was fair game in, in Florida. Later on, alligators went on to the endangered species list, but they're off of it now. So um, uh, last time I was back uh, in Florida, uh, we had some alligator steak, which was really good. So. Oh. And aren't they crazy predators? Uh, I saw videos of uh, them snatching people, jumping out of the water. Gosh, I mean, you know, it's so hard to generalize about them. Uh, I mean, they are predators. There's no doubt about that. You can never lose sight of that. Um, you know, people want to go up and get their photograph next to them or just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. When you're growing up in Florida, you learn these things like, you know, where there's still murky water. Uh, you don't want to just sit there at the edge. There, there might be something just underneath the surface waiting, you know, for something to come along. Or snakes, for example, Florida has four or five different types of venomous snakes. There's one called the coral snake uh, and one called the, gosh, I can't remember what it's called, but they have the same color stripings. They're uh, red, yellow, and black. So what you have to learn is the, the two colors together. So we learn as little kids, when you go outside, a red stripe next to a black stripe, red and black, friendly to Jack, red and yellow, kill a fellow. So you could instantly look at the snake and know, oh, nope, I'm getting away from this one, or that one's okay. I think that's exactly the problem of letting kids play around in Florida. You have alligators, you have venomous snakes. Water moccasins, copperheads, rattlesnakes, yeah. That's why me, uh, me walking around uh, in, in Russia that was chill, you know, we don't have bears <laughs> walking around uh, despite the stereotype. Uh, I, I would imagine, I would imagine it's not the best thing. Of, Our for, for bears parents. were small, small bears. Uh, they weren't like you find in the Rockies or up north in Canada and places like that. Very small bears, but bears nonetheless. So, yeah, and, so growing up like that and also we kind of had instilled in our minds very early on that anything was possible. You know, there were jobs galore. There were um, just everything was wide open. Um, you, you didn't seem to feel 
any boundaries to what you could do if you wanted to do it and you were willing to do the the hard work to get there what do you think created that mindset in people geez i don't know um well obviously a booming economy had to help um i think um the fact that you know we were our parents had just come home from a war um I don't know if your parents were or your grandparents, but, um, and I know the Soviet Union lost a heck of a lot more people than the United States did in World War II. And that aspect gets lost in history a lot of times. Um, but um, I don't know, it just seemed like everything was possible and, and it was a very contagious mindset. It, it took a while for me to pick it up because I was a poor student, as I mentioned. Um, really, really bad. If they had had all of these acronyms that they have today, uh, I certainly would have been at least one of them. Not sure which one, if, if not more than one or two. Um, because I was, you know, my teachers were always complaining. Uh, either I didn't pay attention or I didn't sit still or I worked too fast and then disturbed all the, the rest of the class. And, you know, it was like, hmm. Um, but eventually, you know, you figure it out. And what what, what were you thinking about uh, your your life when when you were younger? Uh, I would imagine uh, when the grades are not a top priority, they were definitely not a top priority for me. I didn't have any vision for for my life. I was just a kid, you know, playing video games and living in the moment. And at one point, something changed. And for me, it was uh, reading a book on personal development and getting my uh, my first plan life mission i had certain things like uh climb mountain everest make a million dollars and and run an ironman those were like very generic goals i had set up for myself at like 14 or 15 but even with those goals i i wanted to get my things together i wanted to really advance towards them and that's what got me uh, got me moving really got me to climb out of just wasting my life playing video games hanging out and doing whatever was there a moment like this in your life yeah um i probably didn't have as concrete goals as you did i mean sports was the big thing for me uh, i was i was lucky enough to be reasonably good in sports um, and that kind of kept me in good standing in, in school, in particular swimming. I was a, a very good competitive swimmer. Um, that helped a lot. That gave me some goals. But I, um, as far as knowing what I wanted to be when I was an adult, it was just too far in the, in the future. Uh, I did see a movie. I think it was came out in 1957 and it was called The Frogmen with Richard Widmark. And that kind of really inspired me. I must've been 10 or 11 years old at that point. And I think that I, I saw it and thought, wow, that's cool. I'd like to do that. And it just percolated in the back of my mind. It's not that I thought about it all the time and went through life saying, it was not until I got into the Navy that I then started thinking more about it. Um, but yeah, that, and eventually, of course, I, I, I guess maybe my, in the 11th grade, 11 out of 12 grades, uh, I started having better grades, and then university was a priority for me. I wanted to go to university. But these were short-term goals. Uh, I mean, goal setting is super important, as you know, but I didn't know that much about goal setting in those days. I, I think, like you, I kind of lived in the moment. What did you want to study in college? 
Well, <laughs> interesting that you should ask me that. I didn't have a clue. I, I was surprised that I got into to university. Uh, there was no internet in those days, of course. Um, so you stood in line and, you know, to register. And as I got closer and closer to the, uh, the woman sitting there, you know, taking all the information, I heard her ask the, the fellow in front of me, and what's going to be your major? And I thought, oh, shit, I haven't got a clue. I don't even know what they offer here. I hadn't even looked at a school catalog. So he said business administration. So I immediately said business administration which was a horrible mistake because uh, that led me to dropping out after just a couple of months because it was not me. Um, I, I, I just, I couldn't deal with it. Um, there, you know, it just later on, I enjoyed business, but at that point, no, it, it was uh, total failure for me. And what was, what was the, uh, the frame of thinking uh, back in the day right now? It seems like people associate success with going to college. If you do not get that degree that will end up costing you $200,000, then you will amount to nothing in life. Uh, what was it like back then? The pressure was different. The pressure back then was a high school degree get your high school degree. And there were times when my parents thought I wasn't even going to get out of high school. And they told me that later on after I got a graduate degree, when I got my master's degree, they said, God, we thought you'd never get out of college, out of high school. Um, so that was the big pressure, at least get a high school degree. If you got a, a college degree, a BA or a BS, you were well ahead of the game back then. Today, I mean, you probably need, unless you're in some sort of, IT or, or I don't know, there must be a lot, a lot of things I'm unaware of um, where you don't necessarily need a college degree, but otherwise you probably need at least a master's degree today. I'm, I'm speculating. I'm not an expert in that field. Um, I, I, I don't really know. Um, I just know back then uh, I wanted to get a college degree. Mm. Well, right now it doesn't seem like you need to get a degree at all in, in many cases because your first job is going to determine uh, your second job. So as long as you get that first job, as long as you have performance, experience, whatever it is, then nobody cares about what degree you have in, in, in my experience. That, that's true. Uh, your first job proves you're hireable. Somebody was willing to bet on you. And then you, you move on from there. Um, my degrees, um, my undergraduate and graduate degrees are in geography and political geography. Uh, and I remember my father saying, what are you going to do with that? And I said, I don't know, but I like it. And if I'm going to study it, you know, study something, I want to study something I like. Um, and not get tied to a job, which is interesting because when I, I joined the State Department to become a diplomat, more than 50% of the people in my class were uh, attorneys. And they had joined, they had gone to law school because dad was a lawyer or mom was a lawyer. And that was just kind of what they were expected to do. And they spent all that time and money in law school and worked for a few years and said, oh God, I hate it. <laughs> and I'm sure that can apply to a lot of other professions. I'm not um, uh, trash talking attorneys. Um, my daughter-in-law uh, has a law degree, so. 
Well, it seems like at every point of time in the world, there is just a path that a society wants to follow. You know, go to college, get a job, and then you, you'll be successful, get a house, get a mortgage, get kids, plant a tree, uh, all that kind of the, the, the standard stack. And with, with, uh, with people who occupy the political offices, it's usually, okay, you need to become a lawyer, you need to practice a little bit, and then you can actually become whatever it is that you want to become in the political realm. Yeah, um, it's funny you mentioned that plan a tree. When I was in the third grade, we had something called Arbor Day, which was like a day for trees and nature. And my school went out and we planted a whole forest of pine trees. And every time I go back, I look at these things and they're huge now. And I think, wow, I planted that thing. It was about that big, you know. Um, so yeah, not planting trees probably the way you meant, but um, uh, now um, I I I have a hard time comparing the way it was to to the way we do things today. I mean, there's so much information available. Um, it's it's so quick to find out things. You've got the, all the libraries of the world at your fingertips. You know, move here, move there, get this information. Um, it's like a tsunami that washes over you. We didn't have that, um, so maybe life was a lot simpler in that res respect. There were there were no, as I call them, uh, um, WMDs, weapons of mass distraction, not destruction. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than maybe TV and even TV, you know, wasn't on that much. So, uh, they were, didn't broadcast that much. And, and probably not, not as many, as much content to pick from right now, right now you can just pretty much be enslaved to a computer or to television for so long. There's this concept of binge watching, uh, that, that is very, very it's popular. Going on right now, I, I do not know thing. how people do yeah, people, especially right now during during the lockdown, yeah, people just spend like their entire days watching a TV show. And the, the, the really interesting thing is that relatively recently they figured out the human uh, triggers and how to get them hooked, how to feed them this dopamine uh, so, that, so that they keep clicking, keep watching, keep doing stuff. And the, they're billion-dollar companies that engineer this. Uh, so it's 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 very sad that although we have so much information, we also do not get to be present, do not get to really think, just consume. Yeah, uh, dopamine's great stuff. I love it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I even tell my younger son, you know, when when he's in school and he does well on a test, I said, "Didn't that feel good when the teacher, you know, said, Sean, you've, you know." got an A on this? He goes, yeah. And I said, that's a dopamine dump. I said, you want to get your dopamine dumps when you can. <laughs> and then of course you open up a can of worms. What's dopamine? <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, we all like it. It's, it's potent along with the other neurochemicals that come flooding down for various things. But um, how do you transition? I want to get back a little bit to, to your, uh, your, education and what you thought your life would be so you, you were you're in the line figuring out what major you would be you picked business because uh, the the guy in front of you said business and it just seemed like uh, something you could you could do you said you dropped out three months later from that program 
few months. I, I'd say more like two months. And I, I still lived at home because uh, I went to a local university, the University of South Florida in Tampa. And uh, so, I mean, I got up every morning and drove off and you know, came back at some point in time. But I just stopped going to classes. I just, I couldn't handle it. So I would, I, I was too much of a coward to tell my parents I dropped out. So I'd still leave at the same time, but I'd go to the beach. So, you know, my tan kept getting deeper and deeper and darker <laughs> and darker. And finally, my dad sat me down and said, are you still going to school? And I thought, oh, crap. I said, no, I'm not. I, I stopped uh, back in whenever it was, October. And he said, okay. He said, you know, um, what did you plan on doing? And I said, well, I got this really good business plan, Dad. I thought if you would loan me $50, I can buy a lawnmower and some other equipment and a little trailer that I can hook up to my car and I can drive around in the mornings and mow lawns, cut grass at different houses, you know? And I said, I'll do that until about noon and then go to the beach the rest of the day. And he says, so that's gonna be your career. And I said, well, you know, for now. And he said, I don't think so. And so he took me down the next morning and mind you, I was 18. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a, you know, a minor, or well, I was a minor per se. You had to be 21 to be of age in the U.S. in those days. Um, he took me down to the recruiting offices, and they're all conveniently located right next to each other. And he said, you're going to join one of these today. But we've always been a Navy family, so why don't you talk to them first? So I went in and talked to them, and I said, ah, oh, okay. Um, yeah. What was going through your mind? What was going through your mind? You wanted to surf and... and Busted, you know, that <laughs> was going through my mind. I've been caught with my pants down and now I'm going to pay the consequences or pay the price, suffer the consequences. So I, I, you know, I had really no choice unless I wanted to move out and try and make it on my own, which wouldn't have worked too well. So uh, I did. What did you think about the idea of when, when your dad introduced the idea of uh, doing uh, doing some some sort of uh, um, military? Yeah, well, well, it was mandatory military service in those days. I don't think they stopped the draft until the mid-70s. I could be wrong on that. Um, but I mean, I was already in and out by that time. But, but there was still a, a, a draft system going. And um, as soon as, the, as that school term had been over, the university would have reported to the draft board that I was no longer attending classes, which would have meant I would be eligible for the draft. And if you're drafted, you don't have much of a say-so in what you do or where you go. You're going into the army pretty much. Um, and my dad was smart enough to preempt this by saying, look, you know, go down and talk to them and maybe you can find some things you want to do um, instead of being saying here, this is what you're going to do, you know, and you get a broader Just have choice. A choice. And how, what, what were the choices? Um, I, I'm sure that not many people uh, know that different branches of military. Well, oh, I think they do, um, or at least in the U.S. Um, although I, I'm a bit concerned that the percentage of people that have served in the military now is probably the smallest it's ever been. Don't ask me for statistics, but I'd be surprised if it was more than 
eight, nine, 10%, uh, because it is an all volunteer um, military. And the, the thing that I thought was good about the draft was it was sort of um, everybody, it was something everybody had to do. Doesn't matter what your color was, what your religion was, you know, everybody had to do it. Gender, gender probably. Gen well, the, in, those, in my day, they had separate um, military forces for the, um, uh, for females. Uh, the women in the Navy were called waves for some reason. I'm sure it stood for something, but I always just thought of, we always used to joke and say, ride the waves as mm. a ship would do, <laughs> but um, not very politically correct. But in those days, no one knew what politically correct was. So, um, and that would lead off to a whole nother rabbit hole, which I won't go down, <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, you, uh, it was something that was just kind of expected of you and you were maybe not happy when your turn came up, but it was something that you did and practically everybody served unless you had some sort of serious disability or you were a conscientious objector, um, meaning, you know, for some religious reasons or particular beliefs, you were just unable to, to, to use a weapon or go into the military. And, you know, that's, that's fine. I mean, everybody has their own uh, belief system and I don't- But essentially it was a norm. It wasn't something out of ordinary, you know, these days, if a kid just goes slacks off, goes, you know, goes surfing, doesn't, doesn't want to do anything, doesn't really drops out of college, the dad says, okay, man, you know, I'm, I'm sending you to the military school or, uh, or something like that. And that's a shock. Yeah, it, it's, um, it, I suppose the parent can threaten to do it, but there is no formal mechanism that will call them in like a draft mm. because the draft was abolished, as I said, sometime, I think in the mid seventies, the thing I liked about the draft was that it, as I said, it cut through all areas and all of society and all classes. Um, for example, growing up in the, the deep south, um, my schools were never integrated. Um, I had never gone to school with a black person in my life. Knew lots of them from the neighborhood and stuff, but we didn't go to the same schools uh, and through sports. But it was first in the Navy that, you know, we were all living together and everything. And you, you suddenly realized what's the big deal? You know, <laughs> why, why do people say they're horrible or why do people say, oh, they can't do this? They're just like me, you know? Um, so that it, that's a good, it's a good equalizer for everybody. It puts you all on the same level and then lets you kind of build yourself back up again. And because of that, it gets people who come into the military, no matter what branch, um, who would not have joined on their own free will, but now that they're in, have found, hey, this is something I can do, and they stay in. Um, so I, didn't, I didn't make a career out of it, um, but, but I know lots of people that did, and they went in not intending to make a career out of it, but they did. Coming back to that uh, drafts table or area, uh, your dad told you, uh, talk to the Navy guys first. How did the conversation go? What did you ask? Well, I didn't really have anything to offer them <laughs> except my, except a pulse. Uh, and, you know, I, I was 
out of high school, I had a degree, uh, a high school degree and, and just a couple of months of college. Um, what they offered me that appealed to me was the ability to, to get out from where I was and, and see a greater part of the world. I traveled a little bit in, in the U.S., uh, you know, when I was in school, gone to different places, gone out to California from Florida. And, you know, that was like going to the moon to me in those days. It was completely different. Um, whereas, I don't know, maybe I didn't give the other branches a, a fair shake. Um, I just kind of liked the idea of, you know, and go around the world and see different countries and cultures and things. So I ended up just signing with the, the first ones I, I talked to. And also because uh, the family had been a, a Navy. I'd had an admiral in the, uh, in the family somewhere. And my dad had been in the Navy. And, uh, yeah, just, I don't know, it just felt... I go a lot with my gut feeling and my gut feeling said, yep, this is, this is what you want to do. Now, once I left and went to boot camp, my gut feeling was, oh, man, why did you do this? And, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's part of being homesick, being afraid, being scared. Um, how, how did it start? How, how did you, how did you begin your journey in the Navy? Well, I mean, you go, you, take you to get it's it? the same. It's the same for everybody. You, you go to boot camp, and then you uh, you get some sort of uh, vocational training. In my case, uh, I went to Gunners Mate Guided Missile Schools. I went to boot camp in in right outside of Chicago in Great Lakes, Illinois, in the middle of the winter, and it was freezing ass cold for this Florida boy. Um, and then the Gunners Mate Guided Missile Schools was another six months. And that was also in, at the, literally at the same base, just right across the street from where I had been in, in uh, boot camp. So that was my first real exposure to cold. Um, and then I got orders to go to um, a destroyer, a guided missile destroyer, and was on a, uh, a cruise there to the Mediterranean when I got my orders finally uh, to go to BUDS, to basic underwater demolition seal training. Um, you get your orders had, to, to go to, uh, to BUDS. Yeah, but, no, but I, had, I had applied for it and taken the test a couple of times and I never knew what happened. Uh, in, in boot camp, we were sitting in the chow hall one day and um, or in other words, in the cafeteria, they call it a DIFAC or a DFAC now or something, dining facility, but we called it the chow hall. Um, and um, in came four or five guys in dark blue tight fitting t-shirts and jump boots. Uh, yeah, I mean, they just didn't look Navy. I, I thought at first they were Marines. Um, and so I asked the guy next to me, I said, who are those guys? And he goes, yeah. He says, those are frogmen. And then it dawned on me, the movie, the frogmen. Mm. I said, no way. And he said, yeah. And I said, so what are they doing here in Chicago? <laughs> and he said, they're recruiting. So uh, I signed up to take the test. I passed the test, which was a not a really hard test. I mean, anybody in reasonably good shape could do it. It was running and swimming and pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, et cetera, et cetera, all within a certain time period. 
waited for my, I was told then that I would get orders at the end of boot camp. So when they read out my orders and said I was going to Gunner's Mate Guided Missile School, I was shocked, you know, and I went up to the guy and I said, there must be a mistake. And he goes, no, the Navy doesn't make any mistakes, son. You're going to Gunner's <laughs> Mate Guided Missile School. So, anyway, off I went because you got no choice in the matter. And then and another group As, as far as over. I know, a quick question, as far as I know, uh, the uh, back uh, back in the day, the number of people who were Navy SEALs who didn't end up coming home was staggering because a lot of Navy SEALs, uh, they were uh, on, on the beaches during the, the Second World War, during uh, the inv invasion of France. I might be wrong. So the mortality rate was, was insane. You're right. Um, Did you know what it meant to be a Navy SEAL and what that implied? Well... Let's get the terminology right. In World War II, it was um, underwater demolition team, UDTs, uh, and they were called the Naked Warriors because literally they swam up on the beaches there to, um, uh, ahead of the um, amphibious invasions to remove the obstacles from the shallow water so the landing crafts could come in and even up on the beach. And don't quote me on this because I'm not 100% sure somewhere. I, I think it was on one of these invasions that was close to a 50% uh, mortality rate. And I mean, they didn't carry weapons, they had a knife. So they would go up, set their charges, and then Whoa. swim back off into the, uh, into the sea. And no, I had no real comprehension of, of that part. I, I had seen the movie. Now. <laughs> That was a Hollywood production, which was, um, and most of the, if I remember correctly, most of the movie was about what took place in the Pacific, not what took place in, in, uh, in Europe. So, um, no, um, but I mean, I knew it was naval special warfare. Um, and, uh, you know, and every branch of the military has their, their special forces. And I have great respect for all of them. And when you applied, when you applied, what did you, uh, what did you have in mind? Uh, I didn't want to end up sitting on a ship. Um, you know, just tinkering with guided missiles and trying to fix them. And yeah, it just didn't seem all that exciting. I wanted to do something else. That's what I had in mind. Nothing, nothing really concrete, not I'm going to go here or I'm going to do that or I'm going to be this. I, I, I think mainly, yeah, it, it seemed exciting. It, the movie influenced me when I was young and I saw it as a, a great opportunity to get out of um, uh, what we call the fleet. In other words, riding ships all the time. Of course, back in those days, you would end up riding ships anyway. Your platoon would go back on a med cruise or go on a North Atlantic cruise or somewhere else. Or if you were a West Coast team, you, you'd make different cruises. So um, it, it was um, it was the right thing to do. Um, I maybe sometimes second guess what would have happened had I stayed in longer. Um, but I didn't. So, um, you know, it's, um, everything has worked out well. I've got friends who made careers out of it and we're still in touch, still in touch with my old swim buddy. Uh, well, after 50 years of graduating, uh, from buds, uh, I went through class 39 on the East coast in little Creek, Virginia. Um, 
in those days we had training uh, on two coasts and I think sometime maybe in the late 70s again I'm not sure uh, they consolidated all the training to Coronado in uh, San Diego which I'd makes to learn I'd love to learn a little bit more about the the buds program it's considered one of the most difficult things you can do as a human both physically and mentally how did class 39 look like back in the day well we had, okay class 39 was a large class um i think we had close to 250 people who began um well let me let me regress just a little bit because i said i i applied for it again in um uh, gunner's mate guided missile school passed the test was told i would get orders but didn't i got orders to go to this ship so when I got to the ship, the ship was based in Norfolk, which is not far at all from Little Creek Amphibious Base, maybe 20 or 30 miles. So I thought, great, the first time I get an opportunity, I can go straight to the base where Buds is and say, hey, what happened? I passed the test twice. Where are my orders? You know. So I asked the officer when I came on board, when do you think I can uh, get some liberty, get some permission to go to uh, Little Creek? He said, in six months. And I said, what? why so long? And he said, because we're getting underway for a Mediterranean cruise tomorrow morning. So I thought, you know, the universe is working against me. <laughs> it's just not going to work. But at any rate, the orders finally came through when I was in Istanbul, Turkey, and they flew me back and I started. Um, so um, it, it's different today. And they write more uh, a lot more about it today. It's more well documented. They've made movies about it. Uh, and I think the History Channel even has a documentary for a, a, a class. Um, it's changed a lot. It's evolved a lot. So the story I'll, I'll tell you now is what it was like when, when I went through. Um, and I arrived there really in poor shape because I'd been on board a ship. I hadn't been running. I hadn't been swimming. Um, Don't you have and it gyms was, on the ships? Or Sorry, people. no, not in those days. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, if you wanted to work out, it would be uh, lifting a, a projectile and, and moving it over to where uh, one of the big, you know, artillery, or not artillery, but one of the big cannons on the ship would be, and then moving it back. They wait a ton, but nobody would do that in their right mind. Um, that, no, there was nowhere to work out. Uh, I suppose you could do sit-ups and push-ups and find somewhere to do pull-ups, but all of those young bucks with so much energy in them sitting, <laughs> sitting on the ship. Now, well, you saved all that energy for when you came to a port <laughs> and you went ashore to have fun. Um, with the waves, we always right? used to feel so sorry for the Russian sailors because every once in a while we'd be in the same uh, port as uh, a Soviet ship would pull in. And they were always, yeah, we were left foot loose and fancy free, go have fun, be back by this time stay out of jail basically <laughs> you know and they were all in groups and were taken to museums and cultural sites and you know which you know different strokes for different folks but i felt like these are young guys our age i bet they'd like to be doing this too yeah so you just you just had complete freedom back in the day where the the russians would have like a cultural program well, I, it seemed that way. It seemed they went to museums, <laughs> they went to the cultural sites, we went to the bars, we went, yeah, we did see some cultural sites too, but I mean, you know, you're 19 years old, um, you're not that interested. W were you allowed to drink? 
Off the ship, yeah. We the U.S. Navy was a dry navy. I, I believe it still is. Um, you you weren't allowed to have any alcohol. And there we used to envy the Brits because they had their rations of rum. <laughs> so, but yes, off the ship. Um, and of course, it was frowned upon to come back uh, completely drunk, which many people did on many occasions, my, myself included. Um, you know, shit happens. <laughs> <laughs> if you got in trouble, got in a fight, you could end up, you know, sitting in the brig, which is the Navy jail on board the ship and maybe not being able to go out at the next port. So you did kind of try to behave yourself. It's not like we were wild savages that ran around. Mm. Any rate, back to that. So, um, yeah, uh, I got there and, you know, I looked at the people around me the first day. And I thought, holy shit, these, you know, they look like Olympic athletes, you know, and they were getting up at four in the morning and taking cold showers. And this was January and like minus, I don't know, eight, minus 10 Celsius, um, not horribly cold, but cold enough. Um, and I was just, I just kind of thought, geez, you know, wow, here I am a little bit of flab on me from being on, on board the ship. Um, and then we just set off into all the physical stuff. I mean, there were, there was obstacle courses, beach runs, swims, all kinds of things. Um, building up to to hell week which as i remember was the, the fifth or the sixth week and again I, I i could be could be wrong on that um that was really the make or break part uh, if you got through hell week your chances were very very good how many weeks before did you have before the hell week i just want to say i think it was about the fourth or the fifth week uh, it might be longer now it might be maybe it's the fifth or the sixth um i i believe it was the fourth possibly the fifth week so and they were trying to you know we were doing a lot of physical exercise and we were getting a lot of harassment but nothing like we were going to get in hell mm. and the, they they won you show up all of the super athletes are gathered around you what was going through your head and what was the first day like um well, I was scared shitless, to be honest with you. Um, I'm not a particularly large person. I'm about 170 and weigh 74 kilos. And, you know, there were some massive guys, college football players and, uh, you know, just really, really prime specimens. Um, and um, I, I just, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So I started thinking right from the very beginning, I can't worry about these people now. I don't need to worry about myself and I can't worry about anything except what's going on right now. In other words, talk about living in the moment. You really lived in the moment because if you looked too far ahead, uh, it, it could be almost over, overwhelming. So this was the, the beginning of learning how to, uh, set goals and break them down into micro goals so that you know you're doing a particular evolution a particular ex exercise you only thought to the end of that exercise that's it. When that was over you tackled whatever came next you never thought oh i wonder what's coming next you just that was the way you did i think that's the way everybody did certainly the way i did it um and i i just told myself 
they can't make me quit. They can't throw me out. All they can do is uh, make me want to quit or try to make me want to quit. And as long as I don't, you know, um, then I'm okay. Or you could get injured, of course, but um, then you'd get to start another class. But anyway, to make a long story short, uh, I, I, I got through. Um, there are parts of Hell Week I remember vividly and parts I don't. One I do remember vividly was um, we were on a long run. I want to say it was an 18-mile run in, in the winter, and it was cold, and we were tired, and this was maybe halfway through Hell Week, and we've got jackets and all this shit on, you know, cold weather gear, and we're slogging along, and we had to stop and do push-ups, and there was ice formed around this, the streets and places where we were going, and the instructors would say, break the ice, put your hands down in there, and, you know, do the push-ups, blah, blah, blah. Somewhere along the line, I lost my gloves. And I think I was just kind of babbling out loud. And there was this guy running next to me, Mike McDonald, who has since passed away. He stayed in and made a career out of it, by the way. Um, little tiny guy. Um, one of the ones that if you looked at, it, you'd say, oh, man, this guy's going to be gone on the first day. But here he was, you know. And he was running alongside of me. And he he heard me. I don't know what I said, but I must have said something like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I'm, my hands are freezing. And he said, take my gloves. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I can handle the cold. And he knew I was from Florida. Wow. He, he said, but when we get down to Puerto Rico, which is where we went to do the, uh, the surface swimming uh, part of it, because you couldn't do it out in, in Virginia. In the winter. I don't do heat very well, so you got to help me. Mm. And I, I credit old Mikey with possibly keeping me in there, um, you know, uh, and getting me through. And I remember we got all the way to the end of Hell Week, and we were so excited. You know, we just—they told us to go into the um, one of the barracks there and sit down. And we sat there and we waited and waited, and we're all congratulating ourselves. And um, the chief instructor. Um, Master Chief Eugene Blaze, I believe his name was, uh, came in and started screaming and yelling at us and, and saying, you guys aren't worth shit. You're the worst frogmen trying to, or worst people trying to be frogs that have ever come through the pipeline. You're shit, blah, blah, blah. And we're stunned. You know, we're like. You just passed the hell week. Yeah. And he says, There's nothing that says we have to secure a hell week today. We're going to do it all over again. Get your helmets on and get out the door right now. But before anybody could do anything, I mean, because we literally couldn't believe. And also we were delirious at this point, tired, hungry, just, yeah, we'd had four hours total sleep for the week. Um, the entire so there's week, a reason four why, hours. Yeah. And not all at once. And there's a reason why they use sleep deprivation as, um, enhanced interrogation <laughs> um it works um but before we could do anything one guy got up and quit and walked out now keep this in mind he had just finished hell week but the thought of doing another one crushed him mentally and he quit and as soon as he walked out the door chief blaze said i was just kidding <laughs> hell, week, hell week is secured. I can usually get somebody right at the very end. So 
I, you know, when people, when we talk about these things, and, and I don't talk about it too much, but um, I do tell people it, 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 it's, it's more up here. You know, any um, normal, physically active person can get through it. Um, it it's the mindset that, that makes you the winner. Um, at least Tell in me my about opinion. Your, your mindset going through this. I can imagine that when you are functioning on four hours of sleep, at least in my experience, when I'm sleep deprived, I'm in this almost meditative state when I can be moving my body, I can be doing something, but I'm not there. How does it feel like to not sleep for the entire week and be burning like so many calories every day, having very little food, doing all of the exercises? We, we did get food. Uh, that's a, a misconception that, um, or at least when I went through, I don't know what they do today, but we, they, they were savvy enough back then to realize that you just can't run a human body on an empty tank. Um, so we did get to, to eat, but we would run or we would duck walk to wherever we were going to do or carry our, actually during Hell Week, we were carrying our, our IBSs, the little rubber boats on top of our heads everywhere we went. And we'd get maybe five or 10 minutes to run into the chow hall. So obviously you just barged ahead of all the people that were in line and, and just grabbed all the food you could and put it in your pockets and everything so you could eat on it later, eat it later. And then you tried to eat something there, but then you had to be off again. But I read somewhere that, you know, you were expending oh, thousands of calories. Uh, I don't know how many, um, but you know, you're just on the constant go. And, and one of the expressions are, can't remember which instructor it was. It might've been, uh, Mike Spencer, who was always telling us, uh, Get your um, put your mind in neutral and get your ass in gear. Um, I don't know if our mind was ever in neutral per se because you have to you know you have to you have to spur yourself on. You have to think about these things, but there are big parts that are blurs. Um, I, I sometimes talk with my old swim buddy and, and a couple of the other people that went through the class went through the same class, and we try to fill in each other's glaps in our memory uh, memories you know is to well what happened then or what came after that and, you know and everybody remembers a different part everybody's got their own story and i don't think any two stories are alike except to say that it it, it gave you more of everything that sucked than you ever wanted in your life and then some so uh, once you got through it there was some still some you know it was hard stuff there were a lot of things left to do but um certainly didn't get harassed to the extent that you did up until and through Hell Week, at least back when I went through. Now today, you know, they know so much more about human performance and recovery, uh, wind chill factors, you know, they have corpsmen constantly uh, on the spot to be able to, um, you know, they know exactly how long they can keep somebody in cold water mm. without there being a serious problem. I'm not sure they did in my day. Um, they might have, I don't know, but if they did, they kept them hidden away so we didn't know they were there. <laughs> um, so what was the mindset? You doing probably one of the most difficult things that you've done up to that point in your life. Um, what was going through your mind? Did you did you feel like, okay, I got this? Were there hesitations at any point? Well, you have to keep telling yourself you, you've got it. 
or I had to keep telling myself, I've got this. I can do this. I can do this. They can't make me quit. That was probably the thing that rang loudest in my head. They can't make me quit. Um, I can make me quit, but they can't make me quit. And so as long as I kept that in mind and you just stumble through, and I, trust me, I was far from the best candidate in our class. I was probably middle of the pack, um, which was a good place to be because you weren't, you weren't on the instructor's radar. <laughs> you weren't so good that they were trying to, uh, that they noticed you and you weren't so bad that they noticed you. I, I was a, I was a poor runner, but a fantastic swimmer. And that, that kept me going. Um, Cause I'd been a sprinter in high school, not a long distance runner. And the, you know, the long beach runs were just kicking my ass. Um, so the, the buds ended. Uh, what, well, what then you just after? have the rest of the training. Um, and, and, uh, and back in my day, you, you then went down to, because I went through a winter class, you went down to uh, Roosevelt Roads, the naval base in Puerto Rico, and you started all of your, your surface swims, you know, starting off with short swims and then building up to longer and longer and longer, and you're free diving and learning to tie knots and things underwater. Because uh, um, you had to build up that aspect of it, and lots of running too still, because Rosie Roads had some, some hills and stuff, and you know, it was kind of a little jungly like around there, hot and humid. And um, we'd run, uh, oh yeah, we, we practiced um, uh, little bits of uh, reconnaissance and learning, you know, how to, still doing this beach survey, still doing the same sort of thing that they, they did in, in World War II, because that's kind of a tradition, still wore the same sort of little tan UD key trunks. Um, and uh, we, we used to go to the island of Viegas, which was just off the coast of, uh, Puerto Rico, and that was a, a naval practice range and gunnery range. And God, I hate to admit it, but geez, we used to trample all over coral reefs and <laughs> blow holes up in them. But this was in the day before, you know, um, and the people of Vegas must have hated us. I mean, because there were people living there. Um, but you're young and you're dumb and you don't think about those things and you just do what you're told. So um, then from there, we came back and we were back up in Virginia for a little bit. And then we, where did we go next? We went to, went to jump school next, went to Fort Benning uh, because the Navy didn't have its own jump school. And uh, we went down there uh, for three weeks. And then we went to uh, the U.S. Navy Underwater swimmer school in Key West, Florida. And that's where we learned all of our, our diving, you know, the real diving, not just surface swims and stuff. So in those days, it was spread out over a lot of places. Um, today, you get all of that through the different phases, I believe, at Buds and Coronado, phase one, two, and three. And, and uh, they even added extra um, qualifications onto uh, training, more than, than we had. I mean, the guys today are like, super heroes compared to us you know we were pretty pretty primitive <laughs> I, I, I probably wouldn't discount what you what you did there that easily uh, i can imagine you know special forces is extremely difficult at any point of time to to go through like the training well you know the interesting thing is I mean, we got to operate with some different people at different times from different countries but when i was in iraq 
in 2004 as a diplomat, my uh, personal security detail was made up of um, several uh, SEALs, ex-SEALs. They had gotten out of, um, out of the Navy. Um, some Army Rangers, um, a guy from the Polish uh, Special Forces, I think they were called Grom, I don't know for sure. Um, he was really good. And we had several SAS people, both British uh, and um, Australian and New Zealand, all ex-military. Oh, and we had uh, PJs um, the, and combat controllers, the Air Force Special Forces. We had some ex-Marines too, Marine Force Recons, um, just different, yeah. Um, and it was interesting to see that the mindset, you know, and, and, and let me just speculate wildly and say, if we had had Spetsnaz people in there, we'd probably have found out it was all the same mindset. You know, we were, we all thought a lot alike. Mm. Uh, and um, I really what enjoyed that. What was that mindset? What, what do you think that was that, that, that separates those people? Um, it's just that never give up, can do attitude, refuse to give up, stay in the fight. Um, nobody can make you quit, but you. Do you think it's a learned thing? Okay, definitely. I don't think it's necessarily something you're born with. I mean, you know, they talk a lot today, the buzzwords about growth mindsets and static mindsets. Um, and if you can change from a static mindset to a growth mindset, then you, I, you know, I, I believe you can learn anything you put your mind to, but you got to decide you really want to do it. And this is where I get into issues when I'm talking with people. And I say, no, you, you just have to decide. You have to make that choice that this is what I want to do. Whatever it is you're talking about, it doesn't have to be in the military. It could be in business. It could be in life. It could be changing professions. It could be, like you said, this is what I want to do. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And you may not do the things that you set out to do. You may not do all of them, but eventually you might, you know, it could take time. I think the, the decisions, those decisions, they require confidence. You know, I need to have uh, belief in myself in order to say, okay, I'm deciding to do it. I'm actually going to start out. But for a lot of folks that are sitting on their couch that for the last, I know how many years have been binge watching TV series, eating ice cream and not doing any personal development, not running, not doing anything whatsoever. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot more challenging to, to say, okay, I decide to change my life around because they don't have that confidence. There are a lot more distractions today, undoubtedly. Um, I, I think probably the first step is you've really got to know yourself. You know, you got to know your strengths, your weaknesses, your dislikes, your likes, because uh, everybody's got a full range of them. I know my weaknesses. I know my strengths. I know what I like. I know what I dislike. I know what what pushes my buttons and, and, you know, if I feel like I'm coming into a situation where uh, I'm likely to get my buttons pushed, I have to really be on guard, especially as a diplomat, you know, during my years as a, a diplomat, you know, not to get rattled, not to get angry. Um, you really have to know yourself well. Um, I'm not sure you, you know, you, you, you get to know yourself binge watching, TV series and stuff. You, you do have to challenge yourself. You have to, you have to put it out there. And um, again, you have to learn how to deal with failure. Um, 
my God, you're going to fail. If I had a dollar for every time I failed, I could have retired a long time ago. <laughs> and that's school, that's business, that's in the military. I mean, you name it. Um, you know, life. Um, it, it's um, it's all a. I mean, I, I I'm just finishing. Um, actually, I I thought I was writing my second book, and I realized I couldn't square the circle. I couldn't. I thought there's something wrong with the second book. And I realized I'm writing two books at the same time mm. and I'm trying to put it into one. So I've now split it. So I am writing two books at the same time. The, the second one's called chasing life. And the third one is called uh, a boomer looks back and it's kind of reflecting on, on, on my life and my personal experiences. Um, and one of the things I realized at 73 is you know, the older I get, the less I know. I mean, when I was young, I thought I knew a lot. Mm. And it reminds me of that old Mark Twain. I believe it was Mark Twain that said, when I was uh, a teenager, my father was the stupidest man in the world. But by the time I was in my 20s, I was amazed at how much he had learned. <laughs> um, so, you know, as you get older, you realize um, the, the, the generations before you still have a lot to give you. That might be something that's missing today. I'm not sure we're giving, maybe we're trying to give to the younger generations, um, but we may not be good at doing it. Yeah, I think the more the more we learn, the more we realize how ignorant we are. And you have this really interesting quote in the beginning of your, your book, Chasing Life, uh, that goes like, good judgment comes from experience, experience comes from poor judgment. Can you tell me about that? Well, it all goes back to making mistakes. You know, you're going to make mistakes. But if you learn from them, that gives you the experience, one, not to do them again and, and to build on them and, and keep going so that you're, um, uh, I mean, nobody's perfect. Absolutely not. Least of all me. Um, and I, I try and, you know, I've tried to instill that in my older son and, working on it in my younger son too, that, uh, you know, you're going to make mistakes and that you have to understand that, that there are consequences of actions. And, you know, that when we're, we're young, our, our brains, the part of the brain that um, can foresee consequences isn't completely uh, developed. So that's why we do these crazy things. <laughs> we, we can't really see the consequences. Um, what were the biggest learnings from, from your mistakes? Yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I, I've made so many mistakes. I, like I said, if I had a dollar for everyone, I could have retired years ago. What were the big learnings you can recall right now? Well, um, probably, let me see if I can put them into categories. Um, life categories would be that relationships require a lot of work and just like everything else, you, you can't give up on them. You know, you have to keep working on them. And um, uh, I, I'm still doing that. Um, I'm learning more and more as, as, I, as I go along, um, even at 73. Um, um, in school, academically, it was more um, learning how to ask the right questions. If I didn't ask the right questions, I got the wrong answers. Um, in the military, I just wasn't listening to people. You know, I just thought I knew better than they did mm. and was quickly found out I didn't. 
uh, th those are some some of the first generic life lessons. I've had some other ones that are very private. I, I probably wouldn't want to have recorded <laughs> anywhere. I'll, I'll keep those to myself to protect the innocent. And I'm not the innocent, but the others were. <laughs> but yeah, they're, um, I mean, I, you know, uh, had a couple of brushes with the law, nothing super serious, spent a night in jail in Spain uh, for being drunk and disorderly and fighting. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, when was that? How long ago was it? That was, uh, well, after I got out of the Navy, that was, we were down, we were in, we were backpacking around the world for a couple of years. So uh, went to the running of the bulls. No way, Pablo, I've done that too. That's, that, that's, that is ridiculous. And, um, well, you know what it's like, I mean, it's just, you know, and I thought, how, how can they single us out? You know, <laughs> but the thing was, we had long hair. Um, and this was back in the days of Franco and the Guardia de Seville. Well, they're still around the Guardia de Seville, but they were known as being really hardcore police in those days. And um, they didn't like hippies. And I guess that's what we looked like. Because as soon as we got out of the Navy, um, uh, first I went to commercial flying school and then I went back to university. And you just fall into this the atmosphere uh, uh, and the environment that you're in. And everybody had long hair and, you know, I had had short hair all mm. my life and now I have no hair. So I'm glad <laughs> I, I did get to grow it long for a little while. But that was, you know, that's what you did back then. So you were in the Navy, you went back to school, uh, mm -hmm. then you did, you did aviation school? I did aviation school first. I was going to be a commercial mm -hmm. pilot. Um, and then I was about halfway through getting my commercial license. I already had my, my private license. I was working on my commercial and instrument license. And um, how did that idea come to mind? Um, actually, my swim buddy, uh, he was four years older than me, um, my swim buddy and bud. And uh, he got out before I did. And his father had been a pilot. And that's all he ever wanted to be was a commercial pilot. And that's what he talked about the whole time we were together. So he, he got out and went through flying school and got all of his licenses and was working his way up into the airlines. So I kind of followed in his footsteps. But um, as the, the, the war started ending, they were releasing all of these pilots from the military. They were all getting out, you know, Air Force pilots that had flown these huge... B-52s and stuff and jet jockeys and, and, you know, lots of people with fixed wing uh, helicopter pilots. I mean, just tons of pilots were flooding the market. And it was my flight instructor told me one day we were going up, we were flying. And he said, well, this will be the last time I go flying with you. And I said, well, why is that? And he said, I've taken a job as an air traffic controller. And I said, I thought you wanted to be a, a commercial pilot. He said, I did, but I don't have a chance. There's too many military pilots flooding the market. They're not going to hire me when they've got all these people with thousands of hours of experience. And he looked at me and he said, you should read the handwriting on the wall too, because you don't have a third of the hours that I have. He said, you're never going to get hired. So I thought, hmm, okay, he's probably got a point. If he's not going to do it and he's more experienced than I am. So I went back to school and uh, got my degree. And what and, was your... What was your degree on? In uh, geography. In, in geography. Oh, that's right. 
Okay, so essentially, essentially, you spend about two, three months um, doing doing the business degree. You drop out. You go, you go to the Navy. Uh, you do the Navy SEALs, then uh, and then then you go through the through the flight uh, through the aviation school, and then partway through the, the aviation school, um, and then dropped out and uh, went back to university, but. It was an interesting way I chose the university I was going to. Uh, at this time, I was um, sharing an apartment with another guy who was also going through aviation school. And he didn't necessarily want to be a commercial pilot. He was um, lucky enough to have been born to very rich parents. And he already had his own six-seater airplane, which he kept at the airport there. And this is a kid, 22 years old, in a brand new Corvette. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so when I said, I'm quitting, I'm going to go, you know, back to school somewhere. And he said, where? And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just, we were in uh, just north of Miami um, at this flying school, uh, Burnside Ott. It was in Opelika, Florida. I don't think it exists anymore. And I said, I don't know. I guess I'll go back to Tampa to the University of South Florida. And he goes, you know, I've been thinking about, he says, I don't need to be a commercial pilot, you know? Um, why don't we, let's go somewhere else and go to school. And I said, okay, where do you want to go to school? And he goes, I don't know, you want to go out West? And I said, yeah. So we threw, you know, the stuff we had in the back of the Corvette and took the money we had. Now he had an allowance, of course. And uh, so he, it wasn't like he could just dip into, you know, uh -huh. gobs and gobs and gobs of money, but his dad paid for pretty much for everything, but he wanted to be a little bit on his own. So we said we'd start driving West. And when we had $50 a piece left in our pockets, that's where we would stop. So we were coming up on Phoenix, Arizona and we're, you know, Corvettes drink a lot of gas. And even if gas was cheap in those days to drive from Florida to Arizona took most of our, uh, and staying in motels and eating and stuff. So anyway, we said, it looks like Phoenix will be the place. So we thought, all right, we got to find jobs. We got to find a place to live and then we can apply to a school. So as we're approaching Phoenix, we're tuning in radio stations and we hear about this 48 hour rock festival nonstop that was going on at a place called Big Surf. And we thought, Man, you know, we can't be hearing this right. Big surf in Arizona. And what it was was this artificially created place that generated giant waves and you could surf on them. And it was like a little Hawaii in the middle of um, Arizona. I don't know if it still exists. At any rate, they were looking for people, you know, to, to work. So we drove right there. I mean, we didn't have a place to stay yet or anything and, and got jobs selling coke selling beers just you know whatever they wanted us to do clean cleaning up so we made a, a fair amount of money in in the 48 hours um and then we went looking for a place to stay and this is where he then eventually had to tap into his dad because they wanted a first month the second month and a deposit which we didn't have but his dad forked over the money for us um, and uh, then we applied to school and got into school. And uh, so I went to Mesa Community College and then I, I got a scholarship, uh, an academic scholarship, believe it or not, dumb student, um, to Arizona State University and uh, went to school there. 
And how long did you spend in school? How was your um, uh, journey? I, I was getting up to my junior year, which is the third year at university. Excuse me. And um, by that time, I had another roommate. Um, my rich roommate I'd come out with from Florida had fallen in love with a girl and they moved in together. And I needed a roommate now because I couldn't afford the, uh, the rent by myself. And there was a guy that sat next to me in, in sociology class that I got along with really well. And he was bitching one day about his roommate. I said, well, hey, my roommate's moving out. Why don't you move in with me? So, you know, we didn't want to live on campus. We wanted to live off campus where we could, didn't have any rules or anything. So we did. And it turns out his parents were from Sweden. So he's the reason I'm here today. <laughs> and we're still in contact too. Um, so we were looking, we decided to take a junior year abroad and we started looking for places. And he said, well, I got all this family in Sweden. My parents are, are from Sweden. Uh, well, I believe his, his dad was from Sweden. I think his mom was born in the U.S., but she was of Swedish parents. Um, so we found a program at Stockholm University and over we came and we did that. And then we set off in what I call the nomad years. And that's when we were backpacking and traveling around and the running of the bulls and Wait, which brings us back to running with the bulls in Pamplona. Crazy stuff. Did you do it in Pamplona or in, in another city? Pamplona, I believe is the, is the main place where it all originated. Yes, that's where it all originated. Um, don't know what it's like today. Uh, I actually haven't been back there since the mid-70s, something like that. That was hmm. about uh, when it happened. Um, and I actually never got to run because we kept partying all night, every night. That's what happens. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's an eight o'clock call. Uh, that's very right. early to get up in the morning and we kept saying yeah we'll do it so the last night we had decided all right we're just going to go get something to eat not drink too much go back to our campsite and go to bed and we'll run the last day that was and, the plan. Uh, we ended up meeting a couple of the local senoritas of course and you know one thing led to another and we got absolutely shit-faced and that's where <laughs> we got into the fight with these guys and got arrested so uh, I spent the last night in in the jail in Pamplona there, and they let us out about nine in the morning. Of course, by then it was too late. I mean, the running itself doesn't take all that long, so um, never did it. But I thought for some reason the universe didn't want me to. So I'm a big believer in these sort of things. You know, uh, I went I went to run in Pamplona about three years ago. It was 2000, yeah, 2017. Uh, it was a really interesting experience. So the, the way it begins right now, I'm not sure how it was back then, uh, it, it begins with San Fermin. So they have this massive celebration. Yeah, it's Sangria. the festival of San Fermin, yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, the the first day when it all starts, there's like a little bit of a, a parade with, with music and with the local mayor, I think, uh, you know, announce, announcing that the, the celebration is about to begin. But then... There are a lot, a lot of really young people just throwing sangria everywhere, and and you wear you wear the the white dress, the white and the red. Exactly, is that what you did? Yeah, and we got a uh, what the heck was it called? First thing we did was buy a Buddha bag, you know, to fill with wine, so we could carry mm. it around with us and drink wine. You know, these little skin bags. Um, yeah, 
fun times. And those are the ones that I'm writing about in A Boomer Looks Back. And I had had all of these accounts in the second book that I was writing, Chasing Life. And it just didn't fit in very well. So I, I pulled all of those more personal accounts out mm -hmm. and put it into the third book. What what got you to writing right now? Like why? I, that's funny because I hated writing when I was in school. Uh, I don't think I ever made a good grade in English. Uh, <laughs> but at university, I, I, I really uh, upped my game, leveled up and... Um, learn to write but then as a as a diplomat you spend your life writing you're writing cables reports action plans talking points you know you name it um forward looking memos blah 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 and um years of doing that got me back interested in writing again and then um now, I mean, that's really what I do at, at, at 73. I, I, I write a lot. Um, I was doing public speaking, but there's none of that going on now. Um, you know, I just constantly looking for new adventures and new challenges. Um, I've just applied for one now. I know I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of getting into it, but... You know, I work on the old principle, if you don't ask, you don't get. That's right. So um, I've applied to a new reality show that's going to be here in Sweden. Um, it's based on a, a British program um, for selection to the SAS. So this, Sweden has some uh, really good special forces, SOG, uh, they're called, and they're having a reality show where they're taking civilians to see if they can pass one week of training with them, you know, with lots of physical and mental harassment. And I looked at that up, but actually somebody sent me the information about it. So you might be interested in this. And of course these are all young. And I, you know, in reality, they would probably kick my ass from left to right and every day of the week and twice a day on Sunday. But but the old warrior in me wants to try again. <laughs> so I yeah. applied. I haven't heard anything from him, and I'm pretty sure I never will. I would definitely throw you in the mix. Uh, you know, with, with your background, you've done so many fascinating things. But at my age, you know, I mean, it, I, I looked at the, they've got a commercial for it on TV, and they're, they're all pretty young people. And, and um, I still think I have the mindset. That, that's the advantage, right? I don't so think I know I have the mindset. You've done the you've done the uh, Swedish version of Survivor. Can you tell me about that? How did that go? And that was that was fun too. Um, well, a little lead up to it first. I was um, I'd been working for uh, the multinational force and observers in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, and my contract was coming to an end. And what I did down there was we monitored the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. So we were bouncing back and forth between the two countries, inspecting military bases, making sure that they were staying within their levels. They were supposed to be both sides. Mm -hmm. And I, well, my contract ends because I was turning 70 and that was the cap, the age cap. You couldn't work past 70. So I was reading the Swedish newspaper online. My family was, was back here in Stockholm. 
and they had this ad saying they were bringing back, they call it Robin, Robinson here, like from Robinson Crusoe, um, and that they were going back to the original concept because it had run for years and it had gotten sillier and sillier and sillier as the years went by. Then it was Robinson, the love edition, Robinson singles, VIP, you, you know how these things go. They got to milk that show. Yeah, it was less and less survival and more social games and pacting totally. and stuff like that. So, but they had stopped airing it for about three or four years and they decided to bring it back and they said, we're going back to the original concept. And I thought, ah. Actual survival. <laughs> well, yeah, it turns out it was still pretty much a lot of social pacting and stuff, but not to the extent it is now where this is, will be the fourth season coming up this year. And each season has gotten more progressively mm. social, you know, games and did, stabbing did you, each other. Did you apply? Back. How do you get in? Well, it had, I mean, it was quite simple. It, it had a, it said, if you're interested, you know, click on this link. I clicked on the link, filled in all the information, sent it off. Totally forgot about it. Um, two months later, um, I was doing my rotation as mission control officer. So I'm sitting back at headquarters uh, at the, the base with all this computer and radio comms gear around me. And we've got five missions out in the field, one in Israel and four throughout the Sinai and I, you know, in radio contact with them and computer contact and monitoring them real time and stuff. So I don't normally answer my Swedish cell phone, my mobile, because I Skype with my family. Mm. Uh, but I did have my cell phone with me and I had stopped answering it because it was always telemarketers, you know, are you happy with your, you know, your TV <laughs> provider or your internet provider? And I would go, God damn it. I'm in the Sinai, you know, <laughs> leave me alone. And it rang as I'm sitting there at the controls. And for some reason I answered it. I have no idea why I wasn't expecting a phone call. I don't think I was thinking, I just thought, well, maybe somebody, Maybe they're trying to get through to me on my phone because they can't get through to me through all the other comms. Answered the phone and I hear this nice female vo voice in Swedish saying, uh, hi, my name is, and I'm calling from, and it sounded just like at the beginning of a telemarketer. And I was <laughs> so close to saying, would you stop calling me, please? I'm not interested. But before I could say that, she said from the TV program, Robinson. And I, I just kind of stopped. I said, <laughs> oh, uh, okay. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, we'd like to cast you. We'd like you to come for the interviews. And I said, well, I'm in Egypt. They said, we know that you put that on there, but when will you be home? I said, well, uh, I'll be back in June, but I'll only be back for a week. And then I'm flying to um, uh, Los Angeles for, uh, to celebrate my 70th birthday. So I've got a week and I said, all right, we'll schedule you in. So I went to one interview uh, for two or three hours and the woman said, uh, okay, so, you know, we'll schedule your next interview for blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be in Los Angeles. How was the interview like? What did they ask you? Well, because they just asked the survival me, they, they put up a camera. It's just one woman to begin with. Put up uh -huh. a camera and, and uh, just asked you lots of questions, kind of like we're doing now, you know, tell me about your life, what you've done. Um, they'd throw a few questions out. What would you do about this? What do you think about that? Sometimes they try to uh, put you in the hot seat. Okay. Um, 
who do you vote for, which political party, you know, and, and I would say, I don't answer questions like that. You know, that's my business. Um, it's funny that on the survival show, they do not seem to actually check people for their survival abilities. Well, no, they don't, uh, apparently, uh, because when I got there, some of the people were, you know, you had to pass a swimming test and I'd already told them my background. Mm. And I said, seriously, <laughs> you want me to, to pass the swimming test? And they said, yeah, you have to prove that you can swim 50 meters. And I said, okay. Uh, so, you know, they said, you have to do it. So I, I did a video of that and sent it in. Uh, and then I had another set of interviews where, First, it was the production company that was mm -hmm. dealing with it. And then the actual TV station came in, the, you know, the people that manage the program or direct the program. And they asked a different set of questions. And then they sent me to see a psychologist who said, uh, who, you know, asked why I was, why I wanted to do it in particular at my age. Mm. Uh, and then a full medical examination. So those were all the things. And, and uh, I, Got it all done in one week, left, went off to Los Angeles and um, still didn't really think I was going to get in and um, got an email while I was there and saying, you know, yep, you're in. So that's so cool. Yeah. Um, what was your you, weren't allowed to, you weren't allowed to say anybody to tell anybody anything. Well, well, my wife wasn't really happy that I was going. Um, hmm. And so I waited till we were at uh, Universal Studios and, you know, we were all having fun and everything. And we're in a long queue to wait for some attraction. And I said, are you in a good mood? And she said, yeah. And I said, good. I said, because I got selected for Robinson. And she said, because she was worried about how they would portray me. Because, you know, you sign a contract that allows them to pretty much clip and combine things the way they want. Um, and you know, you don't have any control over it. Uh, and that's why now I'm always very careful saying, I'd like to see some of the, <laughs> or I'd like to hear, you know, when, whenever yeah. I've done podcasts bef uh, before, um, and this is the first one I've done remotely. So this is an interesting mm. experience too. Do, do you feel like, do, do you feel like you, you, you got some negative experience with, uh, with, uh, you know, people not portraying you correctly or... No, on, on the contrary. Um, but I did see how other people got portrayed. I mm. think I came out of there smelling like roses, to be honest with you. If you go to YouTube you, and, and uh, Google Rick LaRoche Robinson, you'll probably find a few clips. Uh, I, I doubt you have access to Swedish TV, but they're still on uh, some of the Swedish TV stations on uh, mm -hmm. uh, the whole season. Um, but after this, you, you, if you're interested, you can do it and you'll, you'll see some of the things. Um, I, I think they portrayed me very well, have absolutely nothing to complain about, but I know some other people mm did feel like they were portrayed, un not unfairly. I mean, because you do, you know, if they show a stupid statement, you made the statement. It's just exactly. they where to show it. You know, they didn't make you say it. Totally. Or they might take it out of context. You know, I went through, I went through an acceleration program in the, in the Silicon Valley, and it was a startup training program. And when I was going through it, they decided, oh, let's do a docu-series about it. Yeah, okay. So 
so I had a little bit of experience being just in, you know, a part of this this massive thing we had. We have around 25 people who were going through the program. And then we had probably like 20 people crew just recording it. And then I ended up looking back at the program itself. There were like 10 main cast and then uh, and then us. I was the us part. But I, I looked at what we actually did and what ended up happening what the how the final product turned out to be so the idea for the show is that we had founders of billion dollar companies really incredible people with incredible stories and we're doing so many interesting things and the stories that ended up making the tv show were some romance stories that weren't even true it wasn't it wasn't that there was like a romance going on and you know uh and yeah i looked back at it and i was like that that's a little a little disappointing there's just so much meat in terms of what was filmed right no it it, it it's amazing um as i said looking back at it i'm i'm happy i mean yeah you 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 do see how some of your fellow competitors stab you in the back and say bad things about you oh. you don't see that of course until it's actually right. aired and, you know, you don't know they've said these things about you. And, of course, people made fun of me because of my age. Um, but that's okay. I mean, I, I was, I thought, um, very careful not to talk negatively about anybody. That was something I told myself I'm not going to do because I don't know how they'll use this. I'm not going to talk politics. I'm not going to, you know, they would ask me questions about Trump. They would ask this, ask that. Uh, Swedish politics. I mean, the whole thing was done in Swedish, of course. Um, and yeah, there were people that made fun of my Swedish because I have an accent. But mm. hey, all in all, it was a, a really great experience. I made it through to the uh, combining of the two teams. And then in the first of uh, competition that we had, as where you're competing, you know, just for yourself, not for a team. I lost my balance standing on a pole and in the end the the medical staff there said you can't compete anymore we're going to send you home so that was it um i was out well because of your but, injury yeah because of my injury yeah and then i uh, i i ended up having to get a complete knee replacement so i have a metal or a titanium knee joint now because of that experience knee. Well, that it's cumulative. You know, it was wear and tear from the military, from uh, playing rugby. I played rugby all my life. Um, and I had had, at that point, 13 operations on my left knee Whoa. and five on my right knee. So with the knee replacement surgery, that's a total of 19 knee operations. And I'll, I'll have to get my right knee replaced, too. I mean, it's, you know, arthrosis is wear and tear. Um, I've ruptured my uh, um, anterior cruciate ligament, I don't know how many times. Um, so just another word of advice I'd give to young people, take care of your body. You that's may right. need it longer than you realize. <laughs> <laughs> that's an important, uh, that's definitely an important advice. And how, how serious was survival show uh, compared to everything else you've done in the in the past? Because you've done some hardcore stuff. 
Well, yeah, no, it wasn't anything like, for example, I went to Jungle Warfare School uh, also, where we, we did a lot of survival training there uh, in the jungles in Panama. Um, it was nothing like that, because it, all, always in the back of your mind, or at least in the back of my mind, I know it's, it's a TV show, you know? They're film crews that are constantly rotating and coming and filming us. And, um, you know, as I said, I had to tell some of the younger people, you're not going to die. Yes, you're hungry <laughs> as hell, but you're not going to die. They'll never let you die. You know, there's a full medical staff just out of sight, you know. And one guy ripped his um, biceps tendon really badly. And um, they, they medevaced him uh, very quickly. Um, and he was a stunt man, too. Um, really good guy. And he was doing quite well. So he was pretty bummed out about it. Um, but yeah, um, no, we were damn, we were hungry. Very, very, very hungry. Um, I don't know if it was on purpose or just by accident, but the particular small island we were on in Fiji, it must have been right between the growing seasons. Nothing was really ripe. We had cassava and uh, that was pretty much what cassava and coconuts. And, you know, we weren't getting any protein. Um, we did have water, so that was a plus. Um, but there were no bananas ripe or anything. Um, Are you just, just thrown on an island, island and told, okay, okay you, you survived as long as you can, here's some obstacles? Or well, yeah, you're, take, you're taken or... there and, and, you know, you do these competitions and you can win food in the competitions too. So, but we kept losing, so uh, we didn't <laughs> win much food. But eventually, all of a sudden, one day, there was mysteriously, there was a, a goat tied to a tree outside of our little place. I mean, they knew we needed protein. We needed meat. Um, you know, we, we just couldn't keep going. You wouldn't, because it was, we didn't have the energy in the competitions. Um, even though they'd give you some fruit just before the competition and some fresh fruit and some fruit juice for a sugar rush to power you through whatever you were going to do. Um, but uh, I lost 11 kilos. That's a lot. In how long? Yeah, five, four or five weeks, something like that. Oh, that's how long you were there for? So it's not... Well, it's, if it's... you're there the whole time, you're there longer. You're much longer. Um, how long is the whole period? Oh, from start to finish, must be, well, it had to be, I guess I, I, I probably left a week or maybe 10 days before it was over, something like that. Mm -hmm. and I, now I'm including also the time that you, you get to Fiji. You spend a few days before you actually get out to where the competition is. Um, so uh, that's not a particularly hard period, those, those few days you're there on the, on the main island. But um, yeah. So you're uh, surviving for a while, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, we talked about a lot of different things. We haven't really touched on the diplomat part. That's something I would really love to learn about. Okay. Um, again, this was one of these crazy things. Um, if you had ever asked me as a young man, you know, do you want to be a diplomat? No. Um, I was teaching uh, just north of San Diego in um, Carlsbad, California, at the Army-Navy Academy, which is uh, like a prep school, a boarding school um, 
for young men of, let's say, who that might be their last stop before they go to juvenile, <laughs> a juvenile home or something, and they've all got rich parents because uh, it costs a norm and a leg to send them. So it's a military school, and the idea is just to put some, you know, discipline. And um, my wife was going to work one day, and she heard Colin Powell, who was the Secretary of State at the time, advertising for people to take the Foreign Service exam to, to work for the State Department and be a diplomat. And she told me about it, and I said, yeah, you got to go to Harvard or Yale or, you know, all of these, Stanford, and, you know, um, that's the type of people they're looking for. And she said, no, 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 it sounded pretty genuine. He wanted people from all walks of life, all ages, and I was older at the time. I mean, I wasn't, you know, a young kid out of college. Um, so I took the test, and... First, it was a written test, an all-day written test, and then I went to Washington for a, an all-day oral exam, which went on, and I mean, they just grill you on everything, um, and they don't really expect you to give the right answers. They just want to see how you react, you know, or you like the deer in the, in the well, headlines. What type of questions do they ask you? Well, you know, they'll, they'll just give you hypothetical things. Well, you're... Um, a uh, political officer in some made-up country, uh, blah, 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 and you are, uh, you've been told that this particular um, group of people uh, would like to meet with you because they feel like they're, um, they're being treated unfairly by the larger tribe in this country, you know. So would you meet with them? And if so, why? So, you know, and they're made up scenarios and you mm -hmm. would try and explain why you would meet with them. And then they would say, okay, so now you've, you're meeting with them. Um, you've had a good meeting. Uh, now what would you do? And then suddenly one of them would hand a piece of paper to the other one and say, oh, we've just found out that group you met with actually is a splinter group from Hezbollah. And that's a terrorist organization. We're not allowed to have any contact with them. What do you do now? Yeah, they're just constantly <laughs> changing the. And that that's happening for the entire day, right? Yeah. Well, no, that's during the 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 one on three. There are three people there that grill you. You do role plays. You analyze budgets. You you, you write. Oh my God, you write. There, um, you know, all kinds of things um, that you do. Um, and then they put you in a room. There were 19 of us that took the oral exam. So the oral exam is kind of like hell week. Uh, that's the big watershed. Say so maybe 50% of the people pass the, uh, the written exam that take it, or maybe more, but most people fall during the oral exam. So we're sitting in there and they start calling people out one by one and, and we don't know what's going on, you know, because you don't see these people again. Are they calling the people who passed first or the people who failed first? Or is it random? We don't know. So I was called about midway through. And soon as I got out of the, the group and out of earshot where they could hear, the instructor turned to me and offered his hand and said, um, well, let me be the first to congratulate you. But he said it in such a non-excitable manner 
that my brain already finished the sentence for having come this far, but unfortunately mm. didn't pass there. And he said, for having passed the oral exam. And I was speechless. I almost said, are you shitting me? But I thought, no, I better not say that now. <laughs> uh, and so then I was taken right away to uh, a security interview. And that went on for several hours to get my start, the, my security pro, uh, investigation. I later found out um, we were only three that passed out of the 19. And the other two, one was a civilian attorney and the other was uh, a JAG officer, a military attorney. So, um, yeah. And then I waited uh, because it takes a while to get the security uh, clearance. You can't go to, go to training until you, you have a, a clearance. And I guess it was maybe six months, five months, something like that. And again, they called me when I was right in the middle of teaching a class and I had my cell phone and I don't normally answer it during class. And I wasn't expecting a phone call from them. And they called and said, we have a class for you. We'd like you to start in January. So, and this was like November. So I said, oh That's my God. And they said, well, will you accept? And, and they said, we can't give you your salary yet. Right now we need to know, do you accept? And I said, yes. And I said, we'll call you back in a couple of days after we've assessed your, you know, everything else to offer you a competitive salary, um, which they did. And I was quite happy because it was a lot more than I was making as teaching. So, uh, yeah. So, um, were you a full-time teacher then? Yeah. During the time? Yep. Teaching geography and, it, and um, uh, intramural sports. Hmm. It's it's pretty it's pretty crazy how many things you just you know applied for and and have done. There are a lot of those challenges right in front of you. It feels like from the from the third person's perspective that uh, things that are exciting, they're interesting, they're new, is something that you want to try out and you want to have experience. I, I still do, and the problem is is that. The challenges and the adventures are getting fewer and far between. I'd love to go on some sort of an epic quest, you know, as part of an expedition or a, a trip or a, have well, another can, physical right? challenge. I can, but I don't know of any that are going. <laughs> uh, wh what would you do? Where would you go? Recently, they ran a, a TV program here called Expedition, but it was only... Um, uh, celebrities in Sweden and they, they, uh, they took them up to base camp at Everest. Mm. And, you know, they, it was a document, sort of one of these, you know, reality things, uh, although there wasn't any social gaming or anything, but, but I'm not a celebrity. I mean, nobody knows me from a hole in the wall. So there's no one is at least bit interested in seeing me go to base camp or whatever other type of adventure. Are you interested in just going to base camp? Anyways, oh, of course. Uh, I have a number of friends who were on this podcast that went to base camp and that actually go re relatively frequently. So I, I can definitely put you in touch. It's whatever you set your mind to. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that would be cool. Uh, one of my comp fellow competitors that I'm still in touch with from Robinson uh, recently, uh, within the last year or so. Um, I don't know if she went all the way to base camp, but um, you know, there's a lot of aspects that go into that. Um, part would be my, you know, my knee or my knees, for example. But I, I think I could power through that. 
could I make the final assault on Everest? Who knows? I mean, there was some guy that did it with two artificial legs. So um, anything's possible. I think right now they time it super well. You have the Sherpas, you have really good planning involved. And I heard that tourists tourists go to Everest. Uh, I'm wondering why Everest in particular is of interest because it seems like it's a little bit of an artificial goal. Oh, the tallest mountain in the world. It's not the deadliest one. It's not the most difficult one to climb technically. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious if Everest has a significance. It's, it's the most well-known, I guess, and also because it's the uh, the tallest. Here's a question for you. What was the tallest mountain in the world before Mount Everest was discovered? I wouldn't know. What is it? Mount Everest. <laughs> really? a trick question. Of course it was. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> that is a trick question. No, I think uh, I think there there is um, the tallest mountain in terms of like the altitude um, is is one of um, on was it in one of the poles? I'm I'm not sure uh, because the Earth is not spherical exactly, and I, I think there is like a a taller mountain compared to the sea level or something? Well, one of the, I, I think actually, if you want to go from base to top, that technically the tallest mountain in the world is the mountain that the big island of Hawaii sits on. It's a volcano, but it, it, it is extends from the bottom of the oh. ocean all the way up to, and there's snow up on the upper altitudes. I don't know how tall Mauna Loa is, the, the volcano there, if that's the name of it. I can't remember. It's been ages since I was in Hawaii, but I read somewhere that that is actually from the ocean floor above the surface mm -hmm. to the top is, is taller than Mount Everest. But there are others that are equally hard, if not harder climbs, K2 and, and some others. I've, climbing hasn't really fascinated me. I don't know why. Maybe it's jumping out of airplanes and stuff was satisfied me for heights and things. Um, but um, no, I just, I mean, I'd, I'd like to, I just like some challenges. I'd like to, you know, if there's anybody out there listening and uh, you're looking for a, a member, uh, <laughs> Um, trust me, um, not knows how to get hold of me. So <laughs> what, what other adventures would you do? Jungle stuff, uh, rafting, um, diving, uh, you name it. Um, even maybe some, a lot of trekking, just, just, I don't know, just the, the problem is, is, oh, it's not a problem. I shouldn't say it that way. Um, let me rephrase that. Um, I'm 73, but I have a 14 year old son. I, I'm, you know, I'm not like an, a, a 73 year old who all the kids have grown up and flown the coop. So, um, I still have a lot of responsibilities that, that keep me here. Um, so, but the gypsy in me, the, the wanderlust, <laughs> the adventurer, that'll never die, you know, uh, most definitely. So I keep hoping that when I see that when a, an opportunity does come by, I apply for it. Maybe one day somebody will take me. Who knows? So, well, definitely share those opportunities with me and and I'll, I'll see who, who I happen to know. For, for myself, I have a bucket list of crazy adventures. I want to go to kitesurf in Antarctica. 
which is very unusual. And they have a list of experiences like this. I'd love to see Earth from space uh, yes. in, in my lifetime. Jump on that in a second. <laughs> do you have a bucket list? Do you have uh, do you have a list of things you want to do? I do, but mine are maybe more modest, uh, and they're often places because I've, I've, I've done a lot of things, but there's still a lot of places I haven't been. Uh, I would like to go to uh, Tierra del Fuego, the very southern tip of South America. Mm. Um, I'd like to go to Svalbard, which is way up in the Arctic Ocean. I'd like to go to Antarctica. Uh, and when I was a diplomat in New Zealand, my I was a consular officer on that particular posting, and I was responsible for Americans scientists and researchers who were working down there. So um, if they needed their passports renewed or they had some sort of problem at home, you know, so I would, was their communications person for that, but they always flew to New Zealand. So I never got a chance to go down to the Arctic and I kept trying and, or the Antarctic, I kept trying and trying to hitch a ride on a plane. I said, just, just land, let me just get off and step foot and then I'll get back on the plane. But, yeah, it didn't work out. So that, uh, I've always wanted to ride the Trans-Siberian Express. Uh, and I've always wanted to do it in the winter. And that stems from the old uh, movie, Dr. Zhivago, that I saw, and that, which was filmed in Canada. But um, no way. It, it, well, yeah, you didn't make movies in the Soviet Union in the early 70s. I think it was around 72 or something. But it just, you know, fascinated me. And it started... Um, an interest in the, the Soviet Union um, that I had for a long time. Uh, in fact, as a diplomat, I bid several times for different posts in the Soviet, in, well, uh, in, in Russia as it is, um, when I was a diplomat. But um, how, how does the life of a diplomat look like exactly? Uh, so you, you got accepted. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, then you, you, um, you submit uh, what they call bids. Is there a position, uh, any any particular thing that that you get to do as a as a diplomat? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot. But there there are different cores. There are different things that you can do. You could be uh, a political officer, an economic officer, a counselor officer, a public affairs officer, or a management officer. And those are the main divisions. And they're open at embassies and consulates around the world. So, what you do is. You actually, it's like applying for a job. When when you're finishing a, a posting, you start looking for the new job openings across the embassies and the consulates, something that's in your cone um, or in your specialty, your area of specialty. Uh, okay, the, is the timing right? Uh, do you need to learn a language? But um, you, so you basically bid on these positions. Your first two assignments are, are made by other people. They, you tell them, you give them a list of 10 or 15 places. And um, my first assignment was Surabaya, Indonesia at the consulate there. So I had to go learn Indonesian for no six way. months. Um, How is your Indonesian? It sucks right now. It's funny, every <laughs> once in a while things come back. I mean, that was 2000 three and four. Um, the last podcast I done, I, I did, somebody asked me something and I said, not yet. And I, it just suddenly made me, made me think of Indonesia and the, the language Bahasa Indonesia, because 
they, they rarely say no. They say balloon. You know, have you been to the U.S.? Balloon. Not yet. So it's always this sort of underlying, but maybe I will one day. <laughs> and and I, that was a, an expression that I liked, balloon. But otherwise, I found it a very wordy language. Uh, lots of, you know, lots of words to say something very simple. Um, I was trying to think of something. Uh, my, for example, to make a plural of a, of a noun, they just say the noun twice. So instead of saying cars, car and cars, they say car, car. <laughs> that's so funny. That, that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah, well, it makes sense, I guess. I mean, why not? It, it's, uh, I, someone told me that the word for whale in Mongolian, I had a, a, a colleague who had served at the embassy there, uh, was big fish when you translate it literally it's a mammal but i mean to them anything that swims in the ocean is a is a, is a fish and therefore that's it's a big, big fish so um how many languages have you learned by now uh, actually those were the only ones um and uh indonesian is very close to malaysian um and i know swedish of course i, I was posted here at the embassy as well and Swedish is very close to Norwegian. And if I, I try very hard, I can sometimes understand about, I don't know, 50% of Danish if they speak it slowly. Mm. Uh, don't you speak Spanish in, uh, in No, Florida? I grew up in Tampa, uh, a Spanish-speaking town, and I had lots of, you know, Spanish-speaking friends. Uh, I studied one term in high school. I studied French one term. I studied German one term. But they were, you know... That is basically reading knowledge in those days, not so much emphasis on speaking. I felt very ignorant when I and undereducated when I was living in well, when I first came to Europe, and everybody spoke two or three languages well. <laughs> so, um, what was your second deployment uh, for? Uh, after Surabaya, for... I, I volunteered to go to Iraq to be embedded with the military. Uh, they were looking for people that had been in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I had one of the four qualifications they were looking for. Um, and that was that I'd been in the military, but it was not a popular assignment for a lot of people in the State Department, so. And that was a war zone during the time, right? Oh yeah, yeah, it was um, during the, right at the end of the CPA, the Coalition Provincial Authority, when, when control of Iraq was handed back to, um, uh, the Iraqis, but it was also right at the beginning of the insurgency, um, which just got progressively worse. So it was, it was living in a combat zone the whole time because I was not at the embassy. I w was embedded with the Marines and then later with the army in Najaf, South Central Iraq, which is the uh, sort of the, the headquarters, if you will, of uh, uh, Shia Islam. Um, Kind of like the Vatican for Catholics, um, you know, all the the grand ayatollahs were down there in, in Najaf. So it was an interesting place. And you volunteered. Uh, I can imagine it was uh, an extremely dangerous place uh, during the time. What was going through your mind? Uh, challenge, adventure, excitement, um, and also trying to do something good. Um, I mean, I. I I grew to know, you know, the people of, of Najaf. I, I am still in contact with my interpreter. 
because uh, I didn't speak Arabic. So that was one of the qualifications that I didn't have. Um, and I hired a, a young man um, right out of university. Uh, he, he had a degree in engineering. His, his English was good. And, um, you know, he was a very savvy guy. And uh, eventually I helped him get into the, to the U.S. Well, not just me. There were a couple of other uh, officers that he worked with that helped him too. But we all got together. And um, he's now a U.S. citizen. Um, and he, he got a master's degree from, I think, was it, was it either George Washington or Georgetown University. So he did very well. Um, and um, so we're still in contact. He, he's married and has a baby. I won't mention his name because he, he's actually back in Najaf right now um, and um, doing the uh, paperwork that he needs to bring his uh, wife and uh, infant daughter back to the U.S. It's, it's, it's amazing that people get to have opportunities like this to uh, have uh, safety, to have education, to have laws. I can imagine those are things that we take for granted a lot of the times. And in other countries, they're privileges. They, they are not there. No. Uh, um, and, you know, when I first got to Najaf, I was amazed at, at I guess, the lack of basic things and I, at first I attributed it to the war but then as I began to to began to talk with the Najafis they <clears throat> a lot of it was just sheer neglect from Saddam because he was a Sunni and he didn't like the Shia of course so you know without getting going down the political rabbit hole um, it was very interesting um, it was I learned a lot there learned a lot about Islam I learned a lot about uh, just people in general how did that experience expand your understanding of the world? A lot. Um, I didn't have a lot of Middle Eastern experience before that, other than passing through, you know, as a tourist, going to Cairo or something like that. Um, and that helped me, um, helped me a lot when I later volunteered to, um, work for the multinational force and observers. I spent a total of three years uh, in the Sinai uh, doing that position too, so. What's the position exactly? Well, um, basically uh, when Israel and Egypt signed the Peace Corps, the Camp David Accords, um, they agreed along with the United States, uh, the three countries agreed to create an organization that would monitor the peace treaty. They did not, none of the countries wanted the UN to do it. They wanted to create an independent organization. And so they created the multinational force and observers, which is based out of Rome. And I think there are like 16 countries that contribute money, uh, personnel, military to it from all over the world, from, from Latin America, from New Zealand, from Australia, Canada, the US, several European countries. Um, and uh, the idea is we're kind of in between Egypt and Israel as a, as a buffer. We have two camps, uh, one in the north, one in the south. And um, we keep them talking with each other. Um, you know, every so often, we sit down, uh, 
not me personally, but the negotiators higher up and, you know, they, they sit and they talk and they discuss what problems are going on. Well, you had too many tanks over there. Well, yeah, but you had too many armored personnel carriers over there. Okay, we'll move them back, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but as long as you're talking with each other, you're not fighting. And, you know, there hasn't been a war uh, between the two since, well, I guess it was the Yom Kippur War, 73, 74, whenever it was. Um, that was the last. So they're just bringing in the third party to mediate, to to talk to. It sounds like a pretty effective way. And to we it. monitor to see, you know, let's, there, there are different zones. And let's say without going into too much detail, uh, the zone closest to the Israeli border is not allowed to have any Egyptian tanks in it. This is by agreement in the peace treaty. This is what they hammered out at uh, the Camp David Accords. So if we see a tank in that area, an Egyptian tank, that's a violation. Same thing on the other side, the uh, Israeli um, tanks are not allowed to be within a certain distance of the border. And if we see an Israeli tank, it's a violation and we report it back to Rome and then Rome reaches out to you know the different countries. It's an interesting job. Very interesting, extremely. I'd go back and do that again too, but 70 is the cutoff point. For some oh. reason, they think once you're, you're 70, you got nothing to contribute. Well, now, now you get to do survival training and other, other crazier things in other areas of the world. Yeah, but as I said, it's getting harder and harder to, to find the challenges. Uh, I, I know they're out there, and if if I'm still fit and healthy, which I hope I will be by the time uh, my 14-year-old is at university, then I'll be able to get out and do some stuff. But it's it's certainly not fair to – I've left my wife. I mean, the three years I was in the Sinai, um, um, you know, she was raising him as a geographically single parent. I mean, I would come home every two or three months uh, on uh, – R and R or on vacation, um, so I wasn't away the you know three years in a row. But still, it's a very hard burden. I can so, imagine. And she was finishing her university degree at the time, so it made it super tough. And what's next for you? You're working on uh, two books right now. Um, any? Uh, yeah. What's next for me? Um, hopefully, waiting for this virus stuff to disappear. So. You know, we can start traveling again and doing things. Um, it's felt kind of strange, and especially me. I'm in the, tar you know, in the, the so-called target group for the people over 70. Um, I only recently started going back to the gym. I, I stayed away from the gym for a couple of months, but I have been going out early in the mornings, walking and running, and uh, there's an outdoor gym and working out there. Um, I'm kind of hoping this um, this I mean, I've had no problems, absolutely none. Um, and I've tested twice and, you know, it's been negative. Um, doesn't mean I won't get it, of course, knock on wood. Um, but I, I think it's going to be a real eye opener for societies around the world because, I mean, viruses have always been around and viruses are always going to be around. And once this one is brought under control, there'll be a new one at some point in time. But it's a real reflection of our lifestyles. The people that are dying, no matter what age, most of them have some sort of underlying conditions. 
They've got high blood pressure. They've got cardiovascular problems. They're obese. They've got diabetes. They've got pulmonary problems. And, and um, you know, I'm not faulting these people. It's just a reflection of uh, the way we live in the Western world and maybe even in other areas too. I, I can't speak for them. I mean, look at how many people are overweight. And like you said, you know, people don't exercise. They binge on this and that. Um, so maybe it'll make us stop and think, you know, we need to take better care of ourselves. We need to eat right. We need to get seven or eight hours of quality sleep. We need recovery time. You know, we exercise, we need recovery time. Um, you got to recharge your batteries. Um, and you're going through the peak performance program uh, right now. And I just you... finished the, uh, oh, the, just... the, the uh, zero to dangerous. Yeah. So I'm, I'm taking a little break before I do anything else. Uh, I, I may do some more. Um, but that was the first thing I'd done with them. And I was really keen to do that. Um, and I found it very useful. And one of the core concepts they teach is active recovery, taking care of yourself, getting, uh, getting sleep. And it doesn't seem like it's a popular culture in the world, especially amongst uh, higher achievers and people who want to uh, ambitiously just go out there and pursue life. Well, there's this myth that, you know, high performers, yeah, I get by on four or five hours of sleep. That's all I need, you know, and then I'm productive the rest of the time. And that's just a crock of shit. I mean, maybe they do for a while, but at some point they're going to, you know, you can't burn the candle at both ends. It just doesn't work. Um, and that's one thing I, I, I credit my good health for now is um, I've always, with the exception of Hell Week, uh, gotten, maybe that actually taught me how valuable sleep was. I hadn't really <laughs> thought about that, but uh, I've always gotten a good seven or eight hours of sleep. I've never had a problem. Um, my biorhythms are pretty set. I get up early, not because I want to, I just wake up early. Um, and I end up going to bed earlier than probably most people do. Um, you know, I, and, unless we have people over or we're off somewhere or at a party or something, but, uh, I see no reason to, to sit up super late as I start to get tired. I don't fight it. I just head off to bed. Anything you do to keep yourself mentally sharp? That's the writing and the reading. Uh, I read as much as I can. I listen to podcasts, all kinds of podcasts. Um, <clears throat> you have hundreds of books in, in the in those shelves behind you. I read every one of them too. Some of them a couple of times. Um, and I, I'm always, yeah, I, I'm eager to learn. Um, I, I just think you, you know, you, you need to keep, you need to keep learning the whole time because as I said, the older you get, the more you realize, the less you know. Um, well, Rick, thank you so much for coming on. It was a super insightful conversation. So much to uncover and so many questions um, I would have otherwise asked. Uh, is there any any lesson that you would like the listeners to walk away with? If you make that choice to make a change or to accomplish something, you can do it if you're willing to put in the hard work to do it. It won't be easy, 
but you can do it. You can do anything you set your mind to. Now, obviously that's within reason of your, your, your physical requirements. I mean, I, I'm never going to be an NBA player that can soar through the air like Michael Jordan, <laughs> not at 170. So, you know, but I'm talking about realistic things. Yeah. If I could uh, get into naval special warfare, if I could become a diplomat, if I could do survivor at 70, um, I am no better, no smarter, no stronger than anybody else. It, it's just, I decided I wanted to do these things and I was willing to put in the hard work. Just never give up. Hell yeah. That's a, such a powerful message. Um, well, I, I mean, uh, I, I'm not alone in saying that. There are many, many people, you know, that, that, that say that, but it, it's true. Um, you just have to decide you're going to do it. That's the very first step. Maybe even the most important one. Does that make any sense? It does, absolutely. Um, on that note, how can people follow you? How can people learn more about your story? Maybe buy your books? I have, I have, uh, I wrote the, which I just conveniently happened to have here. What a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, my first book, uh, 40 Tools for Life, is on Amazon. I wrote this originally for my two sons and my grandson. And this is more about, um, uh, I wanted to leave like a legacy for them. Uh, literally tools that you, you, you can use in life. Uh, and it's not meant to be read from chapter one to the very end, chapter 40. It's just meant to you open it up and say, what do I feel like I need today? And read that chapter. Chapters are short couple of pages. I think the longest chapter might be two and a half pages and the shortest a page. Um, um, that's on Amazon, but you can find me on Facebook. On Facebook, I'm, I'm actually Rick LaRoche Jr. somehow or another. I'm on Instagram, same thing. I'm not on a lot of social media. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, um, as Richard W. LaRoche. Um, I, I just, you know, I, I, I spend, obviously I spend some time on social media, but probably not as much as I should. I I'm really, I think I wrote in on the course, they said two things in the zero to dangerous that you needed to work on. And I said, one, physically, I need to work on pull-ups. I'm just really <laughs> shitty at doing pull-ups and um, professionally, I need to market myself more aggressively and I'm really shitty at marketing myself. <laughs> well, you're, you're talking to somebody who focuses on personal brands. So I'm, I'm, I'm here, here to be a resource for you. Let's definitely stay in touch. I've really enjoyed this and I'm uh, really, really uh, honored that you would have me. Thanks so much for coming on. It was, it was a big pleasure and let's get you uh, up on Everest. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> well, I, actually, I'll need to do some climbing first, but then I'm ready. <laughs> uh, Rick, thank you so much for being this generous with your time. Massively appreciated. Uh, learned so much. You, you truly have done so, so, so many things. And it feels like in terms of your energy, just the beginning of what's, what's to come. I, well, like I said, when we were talking on the phone, I'm 73 and I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> 
I'll always be in between gigs looking for the next gig until they put me in the ground, whatever that gig may be.